Radio, and here we go, another episode of We Talk Comics on the air and in your ear. Once again, I am Martin, or as Chris will call me, Mo, uh, and Keith is here. I am. And, and Chris obviously is here. And Brett yeah. is not here, but before you think that you're not going to get him, he's going to have an interview with Mike Grell at the end. Uh, anything else to say, guys? Happy to be back. All right, yes. let's go to the end. Let's go to the end. And go to, <laughs> let's wrap, go to let's the wrap this up. Where can people find us? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's going to be a grill of a good time because Mike Grell, he's a legend. And uh, I just finished reading his 80 issues of uh, Green Arrow. Oh, um, took me about an hour. Uh, <laughs> 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 you, one of the things I liked about it is the fact that, it, I mean, he really does let the art tell the story. And, uh, you know, that along with the mature, kind of the mature characterizations of the characters is uh, really makes it stand out even to this day. Yeah, definitely. Like it was, and, and unlike a lot of artists turned writer, like he, he didn't um, overcompensate for that. Like he really... Um, was able to make those books like so much about the artist, even when it like, even though almost all but longbow hunters and like shadow are not him. Uh, no, did you turn up? Is shadow is not on infinity, is it? Or infinite? Uh, it's not. No. Yeah, that's that's kind of a lost gem. Yeah, I don't think it is. Maybe it is actually. Like no, I don't think it is. Uh, Wonder Years is Wonder Years and Longbow Hunters is. Mm. But uh, Shadows is not, no. Wonder, Wonder Year is a terrific book. Um, oh, yeah. Much, it's one that much makes overlooked. no sense to people's continuity now. No. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I laughed when they a few years ago when they did the Green Arrow Year One. And they're like, we've never done a Year One book for a Green Arrow. I'm like, well, I feel like Wonder Year was, uh, <laughs> was pretty obviously supposed to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. No question. But, but uh, they chose to ignore that when uh, they did the. <laughs> the well, how the old is the character now? Because, I mean, Grill had him, he was like 47 or something like uh, that. I, th- I think he just had his 80th. Um, he was, was like he was a. 80 year old he, in the books? No, I mean, Grell oh, had him. Oh, you mean as a character? Uh, yeah, hey, a character. In, in storyline. Okay. Um, well, yeah. well I, they, they, I mean, he slides. Um, you know, as the continuity slides, because they they made him a lot younger in New Fifty Two. Um, he was eighteen in New Fifty Two, wasn't he? Eighteen or twenty or something like that. Yeah, he was quite like well, because it was supposed he was to be young, the youngest of the heroes, as I remember yeah. in New Fifty Two. Yeah, it was quite yeah, quite a swing because he was one of the oldest of them um, for quite a long time. I think. At 47 years old, he would have been like 46, 47 in that range. He was definitely in his mid, mid 40s. I mean, he might have been the oldest character back in, in the DC that wasn't part of the Silver Age. It wasn't, you know, what wasn't yeah. one of their like, you know, Silver Age, the Autumn, or something like that, uh, JSA type heroes. Yeah, the yeah, because it. Post crisis, Superman was supposed to be thirty five ish, and Batman was about forty. So he, yeah, he still had a few years on them. Yeah, that's uh, right. And I, I like that personally, even though I was younger when I was reading it. I, I didn't mind the age. I think there's 
there's this worry now, and that's why you're seeing them constantly try and and uh, replace them with younger heroes. So either make mm-hmm. the heroes younger, or in the case of what they were to do right after Grell left and and take him and and kill him off and have his son take over the mm-hmm. the mantle. Um, I think they think that the teenagers and and children won't read a book that's uh, of an adult. And I don't know, it it certainly never was a barrier to me. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I I think it added authenticity. Uh, When, when, because Longbow Hunters, I remember being mind-blowing because it was insanely violent yet having somehow an older grounded character uh, in the main role um, made it more real. And I mean, I remember thinking this was an important book right up there with uh, the the Dark Knight. Um, time has passed and that has, that didn't come into fruition, for, for, fruition but it, it, at the time, I thought I was in reading an important book, and I think the old older character sold that for me. I think that I think that fifty years ago, when Marvel started, that was the idea: was all the other characters are adults, so let's have kids. Like you know, that's the whole concept of, of pitching Spider-Man was have someone that the that you know teenagers can. Um, see themselves in um but that said the fantastic four weren't either reed richards has had gray hair for 50 years um so yeah i think i think that uh i think it's not so much the age as the experience level because it's it's still uh i mean it's one of those characters that kind of works in the context of him having been around for a while um that he's seen stuff as opposed to, uh, I don't know if a character that is forty and then gets his powers works, um, but that feeling of it's not—it's not legacy. It's like you know, hard road. Um, I, I don't know if there could be a character getting his powers of forty that wouldn't work. I mean, I think it all depends on how good the character is. Hmm. You know how well how well it's written, how well you know it's it's an interesting thought to think of somebody older who was in a different place in their life than somebody who's young like spider-man's trying to pay the rent and look after his aunt and he's got no money whereas when you're in your 40s you're probably pretty well off uh you know mid-class upper middle class uh you know you steady job um, your, your social life likely is fairly steady with your friends and everything and and or you know uh, it's just a different perspective so i mean if the character is well-rounded enough i think it can certainly work well, I mean, with the right creative team, team, literally anything can work. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It might, it might be a harder sell than than something else. But anyway, uh, uh, getting on to uh, to Grell, uh, a couple of things. Uh, he's had a couple of neat things uh, over the last couple of years, but he's not been producing a whole lot of work. Um, the, he has done a couple of shorts for the. Uh, the anniversary books that DC puts out. Every time a character hits one of the milestone, 80th, 50th, whatever kind of anniversaries. Um, so he did one in Green Lantern, which was a Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and he did one in Green Arrow, which 
uh, interestingly ends with like the story's not over yet. So I have no idea where it's supposed to continue, but um, <laughs> it is like an eight page story that is in the that appears to be in the continuity of um, the 1980s Green Arrow series. Well, his uh, his Green Arrow, I mean, we talk about maybe it didn't end up being, you know, Legends of the Dark Knight, but it still has a huge influence to this day mm-hmm. on, you know, on on the, the character in the world. I mean, even the Arrow TV series has characters he created showing up, like Shadow. And quite a lot, like yeah. yeah. Yeah, quite a lot. Quite a lot of the characters he made are in there. Yeah. Um, and because uh, uh, Fi- I, th- I believe Fire shows up as well. In the second so TV too. series, yeah, yeah, uh, it was very, it was like a recurring thorn in his side for the whole, uh, for the entire run, yeah, for the whole Grell run, yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody who absolutely hates, but he always ends up partnering with. I, I'm such a fan of Grell and of especially the stuff he did in the '80s and early '90s, John Sable and Green Arrow, especially. Um, and I've I have felt my entire life like I should like Warlord. And I've never been able to get into that series. I've only read a couple issues, and and it's one of the ones. It's harder to find. It's it's not on DC Infinite, mm. uh, you know, at all, um, yeah. except for one issue. What, I think what, that the legend. It's the Legends crossover issue. It's the Legends crossover, yeah. which wasn't him. It isn't even him. <laughs> he does. He does show up in. Uh, he Warlord does show up in uh, Green Arrow for two issues. I think that's right. Yeah, and everybody's talking about how you know. They look the exact same, yeah. except for one has white hair and one has blonde, and it's yeah. pretty funny. But uh, yeah, Warlord I mean, they've had a kick-ass helmet, though. Well, he didn't have it at this. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that's interesting about Grell, right? No trick arrows, no mm-hmm. superheroes yeah. showing up. They're super villains. No, he's, like, ne- he's never in costume. Like very rarely in costume, I should say. Yeah, rarely in costume. Yeah, like he's. It's it's a very, I mean, it's a very realistic, grounded approach. Mm-hmm. Well, and and of that time as well, like it was a very kind of deconstruction because it. I mean, it, Grell played with the idea that nobody, like people, don't call him Green Arrow. I um, I think at all, um, and like people seem to know who he is, but at the same time, like don't. Yeah. Um, like it's like a nod and a wink that they know that he's Green Arrow, but they don't pay attention to it. There's no super. There's no powered villains in it. Um, well, yeah, it's a I mean, truth be told. Old. I mean, Green Arrow as a first name doesn't really roll off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it, what it is it, about the yeah. word green. Green, if followed by anything, apparently works. <laughs> I. I think it uh, must have been a coloring. It must have been a, like a uh, like a 1940s coloring thing that uh, probably everyone needed to have a basic color if you're going to put them on every page. Well, it would match some of the dialogue because even at the time, I mean, Diana Lance calling uh, Oliver a rake. I would have would have had to look up. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I mean, you talk about Diana Lance and, and Black Canary and. Occasionally, she dons the costume too, but very rarely, very rarely does she have any fight. But I mean, we've we've often talked about the the relationship in the Sandman Mystery Theater between uh, Wesley Dodds and was it Diane? Diane, Diane? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Diane, yeah. Um, we've often talked about that as being like one of the most mature 
and uh, realistic relationships, mm-hmm. but so was the layers he put into Grell put into uh, Black Canary and Green Arrow, um, mm-hmm. Oliver Queen and Dinah, whatever her name is, Lance. It's Lance. Yeah, like like it's it's a very nuanced, um, complicated adult relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll I'll agree with that, but don't you think some of that is the undone? by the brutality of her introduction in Longbow Hunters. Um, Because, I mean, that's done in a very um, misogynistic way, Um, the way it's portrayed. I think it's actually portrayed quite well, but I I know there's a lot of people have trouble with that depiction. I have trouble with that yeah. one. I, I'm talking about in the series, though. No, I'm series, I'm, yeah. I'm just extending. Some of that's undone by her, the way she's introduced. I, I do think so. I always had trouble with that. This is the Black Canary, and she's, you know, sexually assaulted. And, uh, I mean, and it's brutal. It, it is. It's really brutal. And, and it's really uncomfortable. And I, I just, I always have, I, I, I prefer to put that out of my mind and not remember that part. I, f- I feel like he, uh, I have a memory that he walked that back later as far as what he said actually happened because because there's nothing, there's nothing on page. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, something pretty rough happened to her anyway, whatever, she's however. She's tortured then. Yeah, she's, yeah, yeah, she's definitely bad things. Um and of course, in the context uh, that we would have much later of women in fridges, um, it's really to motivate the character and to set that character and uh, like set um, Oliver in motion, as opposed to anything that she does for quite a long time. Yeah, and and it does. It, it's where because of that moment with her, he's willing to take a life for the first time. Yeah, and then that becomes a regular ongoing theme of Grell's series. Mm-hmm. The increase, uh, well, he's a he's a manhunter. He's a hunter of men, yeah. and will take lives when necessary. And that becomes it becomes in- increasingly easy for him as the series goes on. Actually, mm-hmm. I well, I mean, Grell's other big, uh, um, he's yeah, like his most famous uh, character that he created, of course, uh, Shaman's Tears. Well, wow. uh, I think we're not going with John Sable. Okay, let's go with John Sable. Yeah, yeah, let's go John Sable, and then we'll get to Seamus Tears. <laughs> I I was a fan of Sable from really early on. My older brother was buying that when as it was coming out, so it would have been uh, my first exposure to Growl. Aside from probably seeing some issues of Warlord, that my I remember Warlord was the only comic my that a, a cousin of mine bought. Um, so he had every issue just in a loose pile next to his bed. So I'm sure I looked at them. Um, but, uh, Sable was the first thing I remember reading with Grell. It's the first thing you remember reading with Grell. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I went back to find the, those Sable issues because I'm, I remember I was introduced to Sable when, the reboot series uh, that's not by Grell was coming out 
to support the television program, if you know. <laughs> oh, <that>. yes. <laughs> and th- there's there's one that our pals on the Cult Film Showdown could take a look at is the, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the John Sable TV. I have just four episodes. I think they're all on YouTube. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure they are. It's a it's a rough one. I never saw ride. that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a rough ride. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I remember it being disappointing in that he, he had no powers. But I remember just watching it, thinking, "Well, this is a comic book. He has to have powers." <laughs> yeah, but I remember uh, it being watchable. Well, I mean, it's 1987, and uh, it was a TV detective show, so it was that. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was on syndication, wasn't it? I That I don't recall. Uh, I don't know what it ran on. I, I, I feel like it wasn't necessarily one of the, the main, um, <clears throat> one of the big networks, but I can't, I can't honestly remember. There's there's a novel too that I've I have only seen once. Um, it's a novelization of uh, Sable's Origin. Oh, um, I own own that at one point. I wonder whatever happened to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it on a shelf, and it was it was like a fifteen dollar cover or something. It was something crazy as far as the cover. Price. Yeah, I think he published it himself, and it was only available in hardcover or something ridiculous. Yeah. Like that. I, I have, like by that. the way, looked it up. Sable yeah. aired seven episodes aired on ABC. Okay. There All you right. go. Nice. Oh, so it's going to be on Disney Plus any day now. Oh, yeah. Probably. Probably. <laughs> we can only hope. That or Paramount Plus for some reason. It just seems like stuff. <laughs> Maybe he shows up on Paramount. <laughs> like MacGyver. <laughs> What other, what other uh, great Grell runs were there? Uh, well, let's talk a little more about John Sable, uh, Freelance, sure. because that was um, Grell. Like, he had a lot of creative freedom, obviously, from DC in doing what he did. But this is Grell completely unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an, it, such an interesting, wonderful time for independence. It was first that it was uh, published by, wasn't it? First, that's correct, yeah. Yeah. And this is just a, a, a really interesting, groundbreaking time for independent books to to be coming out. And yeah, this is this is him unfiltered. And and if you want the purest form of, of Grell, I'm not sure that that run isn't isn't it. Yeah, and and peak of his uh, like close to the peak of his skills as well. Um, his uh, I don't think his stuff ever looked as good as it did on John Sable. Um, I have the the IDW editions, which are um, came out a few years ago, and they're just beautiful um, editions. Because uh, his his art, he did so much art that was uh, wordless, where it was just nature for uh, like just nature imagery, um, and uh, you know the parts where Sable is in Africa and um, you know Grow on went on safari. Um, I believe many times. And, Sorry, you cut out there. If oh, did just I? Repeat. Sure. Yeah. Um, I have the IDW editions of John Sable, and they are gorgeous because uh, the the art he did on that book was so good. And uh, there's so many two page spreads of nature images and such. 
yeah he's uh he's obviously if you could you could see it and it's in it's in a green arrow it's in sable uh you know it's in Seamus tier certainly he's uh, highly let's say influence isn't the right word what's the he's he's love of the outdoors is obvious mm-hmm. he he goes too far though so occasionally i do remember the 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 eco themes in both uh, sable and uh, shaman's tears sometimes took over the story um a little bit more than his characters really needed to <laughs> it is and an edu- i also it found it a little for... confusing how much he liked to hunt in uh J- john sable because he has a couple issues that's just him hunting which is really a strange comic book <laughs> it is an interesting mix i mean it's very much uh i think that it would be tough to find that uh, the venn diagram of those two things now uh <laughs> the environmentalist hunter uh but at the time it, it made perfect sense to it uh, within because that that's that's obviously who he was so it made sense for there to be a character of that but it now in today's very much uh, black and white world it hurt, it doesn't seem as natural and Seamus Tears Bar Sinister um, mm-hmm. any memories of that I mean that was his image book Bar Sinister was that image or was that out through like a claim or something that claim. was out uh, through Valiant Windjammer right Valiant Windjammer, Windjammer yeah. and yet uh, even yeah. though even though Seamus Tears was image it was uh, in the same universe set in the same universe was oh, yeah i'm, I'm kind of surprised uh shaman's Tear, tears isn't really all that remember because if you remember that was part of the image second wave he was the oldest of the creators yeah. and i mean you had the max coming out in that wave you had wild star star which is forgotten rightfully um, i like wild star <laughs> i yeah i love i love the i'll i'll pick the middle ground and say i love the art in wild star <laughs> you had the pit and nobody ever remembers Shaman's Tears came out in that second wave as well it's interesting because I mean to me Shaman's Tears is one of the most iconic ones you're right and it, it isn't for everybody else but for me it's like it's Mike Grell the art looks fantastic the coloring that they used in that book was very unique and looked great and and the cover for the first issue the, the red foil cover to me is one of the cooler mm-hmm. special covers that came out in that era just tracked down a copy of that not long ago just just because it's a great cover mm-hmm. although just, I, I think uh, uh larry strongman's tribe came out right after which is such a lazy ripoff of that cover. <laughs> <laughs> an issue two or three is a poster cover isn't it i think it's Ooh. yeah yeah it, one of the early was, issues yeah one of the early issues has a as a poster cover that's really cool too yeah i i did dig around through uh through google and heritage auctions and a couple of those places and i think i've assembled 10 pages of the never published uh sorry i've, I've assembled jpegs of i want to be clear of, <laughs> <laughs> of uh the unpublished uh shaman's tears turok oh really uh, yeah they were it when a clay eh, when the whole windjammer thing just shut down um then uh yeah it was it would have been one of the next things that came out but i think they only 
they were, I think they had made it as far as penciling the first issue. Um, there was a promo piece in the last issue of Bar Sinister that there was a coming soon ad for it. That would have been awesome. Turok mm-hmm. and, and Seamus Tears. Yeah. That seems like a natural. Well, he did write a couple issues, I believe, of uh, Turok as well that did come out. He did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, late late on, but run. I don't remember that. L- late on in the run, maybe in the 40s, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then, let's face it, if it was coming from a claim, that's pretty, that's, yeah, that's pretty thin in the cycle for uh, Valiant. Well, I mean, Valiant's obviously very confusing. You have Valiant, then B2, and then a claim. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's tough to keep up. Indeed. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed Bar or uh, Seamus Tears. Was expecting to enjoy Bar Sinister, didn't. Didn't mm-hmm. find the characters very gripping or likable, um, and and a, a bit confusing in the narrative to me. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I, I mean, for me, that's probably the weakest of his work, and I really haven't read Warlord. I got to, I got to somehow find a way to read that. Oh. It, I, I I think with the Shaman's Tears, it also having three titles because he had Maggie the Cat at Image as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, for, two or three, three issues. Publishers across uh, three publishers across the three series, one world is just a confusing <laughs> way to do that. <laughs> that is a lot. <laughs> he did uh, he did a Maggie the Cat uh, Kickstarter just a few years ago. Um, that uh, was quite enjoyable. So it's, cute little book um i unfortunately couldn't afford the the print version um, of the uh, kickstarter and there's uh there was a john sable short story that was made for that that i don't think it's shown up anywhere oh wow that'd be really cool yeah Yeah. Mm. and that's it i mean uh you know uh this this interview we have with him that brett conducted is just a few minutes long is from the calgary comic and entertainment expo but you know, I mean, and, and they listen to him as legendary creator Mike Grell. But on the other hand, when we asked to speak to Mike Grell, it was, is he here? <laughs> the response. So why do you think he is that of all the legendary creators and, and he doesn't seem to get the, I don't know, gravitas <laughs> of others? Um, I, th- I think two reasons. One, his art, although extremely beautiful does not digitize well mm. uh really hard to do those two page la- uh, layouts um on a computer screen and number two his political stances i think has people scared of actually putting him as the face of something hmm. i think probably it's largely that characters like john sable is an independent character seamus tears was uh as they say, not the was you know is kind of lost in the shuffle of all the tremendous catalog that Image was putting out there, the volume, and uh, Green Arrow is as as much as it's hugely influential on the character and and uh, at the time, Green Arrow is I don't want to call him a B character, but he's not A list either. Yeah, like he, yeah, he's he's kind of part of a gang as opposed to, yeah, he never. 
except for that that run like he never felt like the 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 lead character uh yeah and i mean it and definitely goes to show because he didn't he wasn't part of the team in the new 52 justice league either which was meant to be like who are the most iconic characters yeah Um, he's not in the movie uh, sorry the most iconic characters and cyborgs also there and cyborg, yes. Well, <laughs> uh, no comment. Sometimes uh, Gre- it's better to not say anything. <laughs> uh, Grell did issues 30, uh, 43 and 44 of Turok. So right, uh, and the series only ran to 47. There you um, go. So right very, they were, it was a lot of filler people by the end there. And then Truman yeah. came back to, uh, to wrap it up. I think the last time that was really good, from what I remember, was when Timothy Truman was doing it. For sure, yeah. Truman's run on this was great. He had a pretty good run, yeah. Yeah, and he came back and did the last issue of that run to wrap oh, it up. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, uh, Grell, yeah, I mean, any other thoughts on him? The the Cosmic Boy outfit that he designed is the one of the most beloved uh, comic book costumes ever made. <laughs> Why don't more the... people cosplay as that? <laughs> I think that it would take a it takes a lot of courage to do that costume. <laughs> Not as much as his warlord, man. <laughs> oh, that's true. I don't his know if that warlord, that loincloth has to be the skimpiest thing I've ever seen in a comic book. Yeah, he's. I don't know if it's him that's responsible for that because he didn't create the character. I don't believe. But uh, yeah, uh, that's. I, I'm going to look that up and see who created it. So I don't know if he's responsible for that. Maybe he did seem to so. make it shorter, though, from what I, I think, remember. I think so. I think he created the character, but yeah, the um, well, I mean, it's it's basically it's yep, basically created, like you're right. Yeah, it was, Mike yeah. First first issue special was where he first appeared. I'm, I'm always surprised DC doesn't uh, you know hype the Warlord a little bit because that is a ready-made franchise. That they have without the rest of the DC universe, you don't have to have. Yeah, it takes it shows up very well, yeah. to do that. It as seems, a, it as seems a, right for a film, doesn't it? For a film to have oh, yeah. adaptation, it seems right for it. But it, you almost feel like when John Carter Warlord, you know, or John mm-hmm. Carter didn't didn't take off, they kind of went. Eh, there's a few similarities, and maybe this isn't what people want. I feel like if John Carter had taken off and and gotten the the eyeballs it deserved maybe we would have seen a warlord there's yeah yeah there's a lot of similarities between those two properties for sure Uh, but you had dinosaurs and guns (laughs) and all this awesome crap and magic makes me realize that it should have been a warlord turok crossover (laughs) that 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 would have been kind of cool oh that would be awesome yeah, maybe we can still get it done. I think uh, just create some fan art. I think getting Marvel and Jim Shooter to to uh, sit down in the room would have been a tough, tough move. Okay. But <laughs> did, did Marvel and Valiant ever do a crossover together? Well, this would have been DC and and Valiant. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because I've yes, I've blanked apparently on who published War. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those couple issues of. Uh, of the Iron Man that he wrote are the only Marvel work he ever really did. Yeah, he it was like two or three issues all only, isn't it? 
I think you wrote for a little while longer than that because there's enough for a trade anyway. There's enough for okay. the trade paperback of it. Um, oh, when I think he filled in for um, for Chris Claremont and X Men Forever, but that's I mean that's such a legacy book that mm. I don't remember for sure. I have to look up Mike Grell and see what's on there. <laughs> there's probably Unlimited. there's probably like forty issues of Marvel Team Up or something that we're not <laughs> we're totally unaware of. <laughs> something called Hurt or or no, not something called Herc. Uh, oh, a yeah. single We're issue sure. of Herc, totally. like issue number three. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's X-Men weird. Forever, an issue of that. And uh, looks like about a dozen issues of Iron Man. Yeah, I think it was enough. Yeah, I know that there's like a... I know it's, a dozen, a, it's, maybe a little it's more. enough for a trade, but not enough that it's like... Because it's called Complete Mike Grell and it's not volume one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's that amount, whatever <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think it's like 12 or 15 issues, something like that, it looks like, yeah. without really spending the time it would take to count. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think he that also was recent too. on that one, though. Yeah, he was writing, writing or, co- yeah, he wasn't drawing anything anyway. He wasn't even, I don't even think he did the covers for it. No, um, no. And he didn't do all the covers for all of Green Arrow, but he did quite a few of them. The His bulk of them, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His covers are amazing. He did do the bulk, and uh, they did have some. Man, the art was inconsistent on that book, though. Wait, wait. They had some great artists. They had Dan Jurgens for a while. Pardon me. I'm I'm asking, when did he do the incredible bulk? (laughs) It was a long walk, Chris, but it was worth it. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, I wonder what I wonder if you ask somebody like Dan Jurgens what it was like to work with Grell, what he would say. Uh, I, I feel like we did talk about that when I when uh, he did the show, um, <laughs> when he did our show, uh, because he did Warlord as well. Uh, Jurgens' first work was with Warlord, and I mean even in so, that third run, I noticed they did bring Grell, <laughs> excuse me, um, back for a couple issues near the end. Uh, uh, Grell did a couple of, uh, of of which I've lost track of what we're talking about. Of the third, uh, the the third volume of Warlord, uh, Grell uh, Jurgen's uh, run on Warlord. Oh, okay. They did bring him back for a couple issues. He was part of the third volume. I don't know. I I just know that people say that Warlord's one of the best books DC put out in the seventies, but and there's four <laughs> volumes. I know that. Hey, he got a Remco action figure. That, <laughs> and yes, no trade paperback. Where's the trades? Where's where's the DC Infinite? Why yeah, are you making a, it so hard for me to read this? There's a there's a showcase that uh, I think I, and that has been out of print so long. I think I sold it for like fifty dollars or something unread because um, I've never made I've never made it very far into the run. Um, it's a, I I don't. I don't tend to read a lot of '70s stuff, uh, but like like I said at the beginning of this conversation, I I always felt like I was supposed to like it, uh, which is there's a lot of stuff in the '60s and '70s that falls into that. I like I feel like I'm supposed to like it kind of category. <laughs> Does uh well, I mean I'll have to reserve judgment until I get a chance to really read it. And who knows? <laughs> 
I'm, I'm going to have to go into one of those uh, ways that's not uh, necessarily, uh, uh, you know, a uh, little bit more uh, in the dark shadows, the under, in the dark <laughs> underweb to try and read this thing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, what do you call it? It's like the poorly lit web as opposed to the dark web. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's where the comics was. <laughs> poorly lit web. So, yeah, I think that's about it. We're covering Grell. We'll, we'll put the interview on at the end. But I, I have a question for you based on, you know, something we were talking about earlier. Um, how, if comic books think that the best way to get young readers is to make young heroes, including the legacy ones, what do you guys think is the best way to get young readers? A time machine. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the big thing. Is I mean, comic books are the crowd gets older and older that is reading mm. them, and it's gonna it's it's already become an issue. It's caught up to them already. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking. We've, uh, I mean, we're past we're past a decade talking about this uh, this topic on the show because it's. Um, I think that. Uh, I think that it's probably a mistake to to keep trying, um, and because I think you need to redefine. I think that they need to redefine what young is, because I think that the target audience to get people into comics is as a teenager, not as an eight year old. That's probably true. That's probably true. I mean, the comics aren't really as accessible for an eight year old as they were when we were young. If they're accessible, well, and- probably enough for a teenager. Well, and it's a it's a double edge because to make them accessible and uh, you you alienate the older readers completely. And I mean, we've seen that for decades too. The I was just reading something else we're we're going to talk about a little later. Where I was just reading about uh, the uh, the Red Circle characters and Impact Comics, and that was the idea was to make those um, targeted at you know preteen or or teen readers and the line was very unsuccessful um it started out okay but then it like it quickly died off part and probably that was because the older readers who were attached to those characters um you know were put off by it being aimed at younger so um i mean you've got the you're in the spot where you want to attract young readers but your bills are paid by older readers so like, how do you balance, how do you make those two things work? Well, all the superhero books feel like they're mature readers now. Most of the, yeah, mm-hmm. most, of the, most of the Marvel and DC are teen, are teen books well, now. I mean, they're, they're no, Marvel and DC are pushing out the manga format uh, trades uh, without continuity uh, mm-hmm. to, to try to attract the, that younger de- de- demographic. I don't think we'll ever get continuity with with a book that is trying to attract that that younger audience no i think it's the the bookstore market is what is where they're really putting their their time and money into now for younger um dc has i don't know how many dc books now have been made for that they're made for younger readers they like you said they are out of continuity and they're a bookstore market piece Uh, Perhaps it doesn't even, you know, I mean, it's changed so much in the 10 years or 12 years or whatever it is since this thing launched, I guess, 2011. uh, That's right, yeah. uh, Yeah. So, I mean, 2011, Thor had just come out, and Captain America was just about to come out when we launched. Wow. 
uh, first Avenger was just about to come out. So it's changed so much between them because now these these properties are worth you know so much more because we've seen the success they can have in the theater. So that yeah. even if they if the comics aren't successful and you aren't bringing in new crowds, as long as those crowd their crowds are of all ages are going to the movie theater to see characters, doesn't matter if they're not reading Spider Man, they're still there's Spider Man still making them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just that we need to you know I'm always going they need more young readers. Maybe they don't. Maybe they can take a look. There is a lost leader for another part of their business. Well, and I think that that is a model that they've been using, that especially Marvel's been using. Um, that, I mean, it's why that the lineup of the Avengers is, has, you know, is almost always characters that have been in the films. You know, it's not coincidental that the lineup of the Avengers just happened to become the lineup that was in the movie uh, no, for quite a while. <laughs> it's so it's, I think that, it's. Uh, uh, not coincidental. I, ultimate Nick Fury now looks like Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of long walks to get to the end, uh, replacing Nick Fury was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that that's that's also your best bet for bringing people in is like give them more of that thing. Uh, that's a debate that's been around for a while. Is um, you know it. it if you do that, does it bring a non-reader into comics or does it really target that Venn diagram of people who read comics and also go to the movies? Well, um, I mean, it's obviously with the box office a lot more than people that are reading the comics. Going well, to vice, the but I'm talking about vice versa. Like, I'm, I, yeah. An example is a Star Wars comic book. Um, yeah. Is that going to bring people who watch the Star Wars movies to comics? Or is the target audience people who are already going to read comics and like Star Wars? Well, I've always, to be honest with you, wondered why it was they didn't give out free. Like the opening weekend, everybody that goes to the new Thor movie gets issue number one of Thor and or something like that. And that leaves it on a cliffhanger and hopefully it's a good issue. And I mean, free comic book day is one thing and it's incredibly popular. But I mean, that, that to me is if, if everybody who went got a copy of the book, even an ash can or something like that that was print to you know easy to cheaper to print or something. Everybody did. They got a copy of the book. They read it. They enjoyed it. They saw the movie. I think they'd be more likely to go seek it out than when they see the movie. They're just done with it. Well, Marvel was giving away free digital copies on their DVDs for the first little while with the movies. Um, but I, I think it, it, that yeah. was tremendously unpopular. Well, it's. I so mean, that it, was unpopular with the stores. Well, I mean, you've got. I mean, you've got you've got ROI though. Like, you've got the return on investment. Um, that's an expensive thing to do, and is it going to bring enough people in to pay off long term? We don't know until um, we try. But the, well, they. I mean, they've they've done digital codes handouts though, and they've, uh, uh, as Chris said, they've done co- they've done codes with the uh, with. DVDs. Um, they they did a Blade comic that was included in the DVD, uh, and I think they did the same on Punisher. Uh, so there are examples of them doing things similar to what you're saying. But um, I mean, the cost to produce, distribute um, a comic per person for the opening weekend of a Marvel movie would be staggering. 
Yes, uh, and yet the comic, and yet the characters are uh, so valuable to them that they still make a profit. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I mean, if uh, I mean, what did the last Marvel movie do on its opening weekend? Doctor Strange, you mean? Yeah, fifty or sixty million or more. Oh, I let me look it up real quick because it's got to be more than that. Well, that's the problem, though, is that you know the average ticket price is something like eight or nine dollars is what it works out to um, over you know sixty or seventy million. Oh. You're now you're now talking about making the highest print run of a comic since like the nineteen forties. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's why I say they make it like an eight page ash can or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I like I like it as a, I like it as an idea, and it, and and it would I mean if you did it in target markets too, um, you could like you could do either the big cities or the cities that are, you know, statistically going to be better hits. Like you could do eh, you could target ones where there's a lot of readers in general, that kind of thing. See, um, hey, I I I think this idea is doomed from the start, just on the basis of you're never going to get a convert. Uh, to go from reading no comic books to reading comic books with a single issue. Mm. And you'll um, never be able to give a give somebody a complete, a complete storyline that's complex enough to hook them um, economically with a giveaway. So I think well, that- I don't know. I- I can tell you that they made 137 million that opening weekend. <laughs> and you're right. That would be a lot of books. So maybe make a million. About a million to see what happens. Because you just made you they that movie's already made 840 million worldwide. Yeah. Well, it's I mean that's the thing. That's that's probably more than Marvel Comics made last year, though, as like a as a comic publisher. So um I mean, are that's also the ROI problem is, I mean, you could spend that amount of money and, and maybe you get, maybe you, it's like staggeringly successful and 10% of those people will try more comics, but then, then what? Because you're like, well, one, the money, like you're spending money from one pile going way over to someone else, but, but also, are you ever going to get the return on that based on the the cost of comics yeah, um, that's true so and maybe if they get unknown people to create it you know they'd have to hire expensive <laughs> known creators and then you know i'll write the story for you Marvel, so and, uh, the idea is to give away bad bucks. comic books now. i i think you're onto something yeah i think you're yeah something. now i got it uh, i i i, I, I do something. uh it is like like i said it's a it's a topic that i've i've been interested in um and I think that I think taking it out of that into something like I mean Star Wars I think is an example, um, but any but like any kind of tie-in comic, uh, I mean Marvel makes comic books that are in continuity with the films, and those aren't the are, those aren't top ten selling books. Yeah. Uh, so like there was a prologue to like you know. I don't remember if there was one for the new Doctor Strange movie, but there was for the other Doctor Strange movie. And it's not like those books, you know, sold some, you know, astronomical amount. Well, that's because people going to the movie didn't know it existed. Hmm. I I think an, an answer or part of the key could be 
pop out pop up comic book stores and movie openings. Mm, I like that a lot. Oh, that's a good idea. And you yeah, know what else know. they could try is a, a trailer for the comic book in front of the movie. Mm. They they used to like the old the old TV shows always said like read Marvel comics at the end of them. Yeah. Um, and, like, and the, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just thinking that uh, like the Marvel the Marvel Marching Society, whatever that one's called, Marvel superheroes animated and i'm sure others did the same of like you know you can read these guys on this they're on newsstands now and, and uh, you can some, with marvel superheroes you could buy the exact issue that <laughs> they cut up to make the uh, that's right <laughs> and the thing is we know everything marvel puts out is going to make a certain amount of money you know and you know everything put up by dc is going to have some you know some eyeballs it'll it's be canceled immediately it's the independent ones that are the independent comic books that I really I worry for if they're not bringing in a new audience, you know, and and that's where, uh, you know, we talk about a John Sable freelance, you know, I mean, that that and because and you never know those movies, those IPs still become movies occasionally. And uh, sometimes they hit, sometimes they don't. But. They should be as IP still have some value, you would think, but there's no well, guarantee on any of those that they're going to have any ideas. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Walking Dead is an outlier in that it's it's probably like in the past 20 years, it's the most successful at bringing someone from an outside property to a comic. That's true. Uh, in a way that no one else has, and and part of that is that it's not that it is like you know it was the same vision behind both. It was touching on some of this. It had the same characters. It was like the TV show is a is a loose adaptation of the comics. There's a lot more to it, and it's not like you walked in, you had to walk into a comic store and decide which of the five Spider-Man titles felt like the movie you just saw. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Good point. I, Spoiler: I, It's none of them. The, the uh, crossovers <laughs> from the comic books was tremendously successful because I heard an interview where Kirkman actually did say that even at the end, he was making more money off the comic books than he ever did off the television series. Wow. I believe that. I mean, the comic books were so wildly successful. And, you know, I, it's just, I, I don't know, it's just funny to see how far we've come because in 1989 when Batmania hit and there was Batman underwear and lunch boxes yeah. and everything else it made it and that movie was so successful it it drove the sales of the comic book up significantly yeah. and it, um, it it's if it did it then why does it not do it now and i guess it's just uh the audience nowadays is is they get enough superheroes perhaps that's it well and i mean there's there's just the simple competition for it of when you had batman in 1989 there were comics and there was a novel um and that was kind of it but now if you see a doctor you saw the new doctor strange movie there'll be a book and there's comics and there's a video game and there's a lego set and uh like whatever way you like to consume your additional media um, i'm sure there's a cartoon that has doctor strange in it yeah exactly like there yeah, yeah you and and uh, and there was just a uh, uh, high definition version of the 1970s Doctor Strange. So if you want more Doctor Strange, 
oh. you can be covered. <laughs> did, did the cult film showdown will take that on. <laughs> they they remastered that piece they of did crap. Indeed. They did indeed. That's wonderful. Wow. They'll remaster. It, it's got the name Doctor Strange on it. You're going to make a buck. Yeah, but I've seen that sucker, man. <laughs> That's not something they want out in the public. Let's face it, that we're still going to see the Corman, um, high-definition Corman, um, Fantastic Four. Still going to happen for that reason. Oh. <laughs> oh, we're that, all looking that, forward that to that. That actually was watchable, though. The documentary is way more watchable than the movie. The documentary is so much better than the movie. <laughs> documentary is incredible. Of course, you'd think it was the greatest movie ever ever made by the end of that documentary. <laughs> it feels a little skewed, yeah. <laughs> hey, anything else on your on your mind, guys, before we uh, wrap this sucker up and go to Brett and Mr. Mike Grell? Uh, well, I want to watch Doctor Strange. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm lo- I'm still loving the DC Infinite. Uh, and uh, I'm reading Challengers of the Unknown on there. Jeff Loeb and Tim Sales. It's Tim Sales' fourth comic book series, and wow. Jeff Loeb's first. Is it really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. That that so series, good. That that one is so good. There's there's a couple of really good runs of Challengers. There's a Howard Chaikin run as well. Yeah, that's exactly. not on I've always been curious about the Kirby uh, early challenges of, of the unknown, early superhero crap. The Blackhawks oh, by Chicken isn't on there. I looked. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. At least yeah. Infinite does have mature reader stuff. It's just, it's still pretty it's thin. It's yeah. still pretty thin, though. Yeah. Uh, There's a little bit of mature readers now on Marvel Unlimited. Like some of the Max is on there. Oh, is but, it okay? Yeah, Jessica Jones and. Oh, that's good. For Things quite like a long that. time, it was, yeah, quite a long time there was not uh, none of the yeah. the knights or max. No, now there's a little bit, but not very much. I mean, knights knights wasn't aimed as old as max was, but it was still mature. No. Yeah. Um, All right, let's uh, kick it over to Brett and Mike Grell, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, remember, only a ninja can kill a ninja. Hi, this is Brett. I am here with We Talk Comics at the Calgary Expo, and I have uh, an amazing guest with me, Mike Grell, one of our all-time favorite artists. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Well, I mean, it's great to have you back in Calgary. I know we've uh, we've missed you for a while. Now, you are a legend in, in comic art, and I want to know just kind of about you, because your style is so, it seems so specific to you. Are you kind of surprised that, that there weren't more, I guess, imitators of your art? No, because I'm an imitator myself. <laughs> I got into the business because I could draw in the style that was popular at the time, which was basically Neil Adams' style, right? And over the years, my style has evolved like any decent artist. Their style will evolve and change over the years because if you don't grow... You stagnate, and if that happens, that's a death knell for an artist. I don't draw today like I do back in those days. Um, there's similarities because you, you can't shake your early influences, honestly. Um, guys like Frank Frazetta, uh, 
to his dying day, he still knew cavemen that looked like uh, Al Cap's uh, hillbillies, right? Yeah. Because he used to work for Al Cap. Neil worked for an artist by the name of Stan Drake. And if you take a look at Stan Drake's comic strip, The Heart of Juliet Jones, there's a character in there, Eve Jones, who is Black Canary. Wow. I mean, she looks exactly like Black Canary. And that style of rendering was developed by guys like Stan Drake and Leonard Stark. Learned not so much with the fine cross hatching, but still. Uh, everything leaves an impact, makes an, imp- an impression on you as an artist. For me, my artistic epiphany happened, and you can compare the cover for Sable, John Sable Freelance, issue number one and issue number two. They were actually drawn about six weeks, maybe two months apart. And in the middle, I bought two books. One was called The Magic Pen of Joseph Clement Cole, and the other one was called, uh, Cole was a turn-of-the-century illustrator. And the other one was called The Pencil by Paul Cowley. Cowley did with a pencil what Cole did with a pen. Lots of texture, linear direction in his drawings to where the lines and the strokes all pointed to the point of focus. And all of a sudden, a light bulb went on in the back of my head. And if you take a look at the interior for uh, Sable Issue 1, the, the cover is uh, carryover from my superhero days. He's wearing a skin-tight black suit, right? Solid black. The interior is done after I had that light bulb oh, okay. go on. So, as far as well, why haven't I made more of an impression? I, I think if I taught any young artist anything, it was it's okay to follow someone, but don't follow so close because otherwise you're going to wind up riding their coattails for the rest of your career, which is not good for you. Um, uh, Wilson Kevich uh, phoned me up one day and he was he was having an ongoing war with, uh, with Neil Adams. Neil was not happy that Bill was doing Moon Knight over at Marvel in a style that was the popular style of the time, which was Neil's style, right? Except Bill was doing it a little better. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I said, uh, so he said, he said, why is Neil so mad at me? And I said, holy He's like 24 at the time, I think. Maybe younger than that. I said, and you've already topped him, right? It's, it's, it's nothing but professional jealousy. I said, but now what you want to do is use this as a springboard and develop your own style from here. Go off and do your own thing. Just grow. And next thing you know, he's doing electric. Yeah. And the style had shifted and changed, and it's changed again and again over the years as he comes under uh, influences of, of different artists. For a while, he was working in a style very similar to a commercial artist by the name of Bernie Fuchs. And Bill, Bill is such a, a terrific natural talent that it took him no, long, no time at all 
to get that dong pat and then surpass it and go on to the next thing. And he's a he's a guy I'm sure that when he's seventy years old he's gonna be drawing in another new style. Right. Just because that that's how yeah. you can do it. Yeah. That's how, you, how you stay vital. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. So then another question that I'm interested in is like with you with you writing as well as doing the art like do you find it to be kind of more natural to write your own work I've always preferred to write my own stuff uh, I, I was originally gearing myself to do newspaper comic strips and I wanted to write and draw my own stories uh, no two ways about it um, I find that writing is writing's the fun part Drawing is the work part. Yeah. And over the years, as I've become a better writer, the drawing has become harder and harder oh, okay. because I feel like I owe it to my readers and to myself to do my absolute best work. Uh, sometimes I've, I've specifically taken on titles or created titles because I wanted it to bring out the best that I had to offer. That was the case with Sable. I was given carte blanche to do anything I wanted. So that's why the character has an African background because I was always into Africa even as a kid. And it gave me a chance to draw animals and outdoor stuff. Lots of guns, you know. I I was really into that stuff. And same thing sort of went on with uh, Shaman's Tears where uh, it's a, a, a Native American First Nations theme and lots of animal stuff, lots of outdoor um, um, native spirituality and stuff that's always been a deep interest to me. And um, I knew that it would bring out the best in me. And the, the, the most recent example was uh, I did a, a, a series on the warlord for the 35th anniversary where I actually killed him off. Wow. Uh, yeah after 35 years and and handed over to his son and the um, the story that I had written was complex and the art was a real chore because I had so many characters in the big battle scenes and everything else and at the point where I'm burning the midnight oil pulling all-nighters after after 35 plus years in the business and thinking to myself what the hell was I thinking (laughs) did my brain would go yeah but you know you asked for this and this is what you wanted to do at that time uh, Billy Tucci was working on a a feature called um, um, the Lost Battalion Oh, Sergeant yeah. Rock, right? Yep. Yeah, which is a great book. Yeah. And I had seen Billy's early pages, which were reproduced from pencil. And uh, every time I'd find myself going, man, what a pain in the ass, I'd think, yeah, but what would Billy do? And the answer was always, he would knuckle down and get it done. So <laughs> shut the hell up and do your job. And, and I did. And it came out really, really good. I'm really proud of that one. 
Yeah, it must be so important to continue pushing yourself. And I, and I think maybe that's what I was wondering is as a writer, you have to focus on pushing yourself as an artist. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, it would be too easy, I think, just to fall into that rut of, oh, I know what I do best. Therefore, I'm going to always do that. Exactly. Exactly. I, I used to say the advantage of working for Mike Grell, the writer, is that Mike Grell, the writer, never writes anything that Mike Grell, the artist, can't handle. And then I got to be a better writer. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I would write myself into a corner and sit down with the finished script and go, oh, crap, I can't believe I have to draw this. Whose bright idea was this anyway? Well, it was yeah. mine. Yeah, yeah Mike Rell, the writer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. bastard. <laughs> but yeah, like it's because it's so interesting to, to have followed your career for as many years as we have and to, and I, and I like you talk about the animals and so, and I know we've seen that even in Green Arrow and stuff like that. Right. And I love the fact that, that you really humanized Green Arrow. You, in in such a way that I mean, and I know what Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill did before, but like I love what you did in kind of removing the trick arrows and and kind of stripping that back that to the image. basics, yeah, yeah. As, as much as possible. I wanted to get away from all the aspects of what might be considered superheroes, um, and so the 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 focus was always on the relationship between Ollie and Dinah. Yeah. It's my arc of the, from the Longbow Hunters through my entire run of Green Arrow, it's a love story. It's a love story between Ollie and Dinah. And the, their relationship is at the heart of everything. It's what brought about the change in his character when it was, it was time to make that change. It was, it was because of what happened to her. How he went from having sworn he would never take a, another human life to sticking arrows in guys, yeah, because they just bloody well deserve it, right? Um, so that that was all part of the the humanization of it, and to to bring in aspects of aftermath of violence. There, there are so many cases, so many stories that you read where the hero gets shot in one episode and the next issue he doesn't even have a, a scar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, when I did when I did Sable, I, I, I had him shot and the next issue took place in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And the next issue after that, he's on a cane, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you don't you don't just brush this stuff off. Uh, and and the aftermath of violence is not just physical either, it's psychological. So with Ollie and Dinah in the Longbow Hunters where anybody who hasn't read it should get it out and read it because Boy, one, should of the, they ever. One, of, yeah, one of the best things I ever wrote. Far none, um, far none. Yeah. In order to bring about that change, I put Dinah in a situation where Ollie had a choice. They're already shown that he can shoot the knife out of a guy's hand. No problem at all. But when the guy is coming at Dinah with a knife, he makes the choice in that instant that he shoots him square through the heart. And that's a choice. And from that moment, his entire life changes. His relationship with Dinah changes. 
because as the story goes on, as the series wears on, they both suffer the after effects of that moment. The trauma that's happened to her uh, affects her to where they go from having the best sexual relationship in comics. These guys had been stooping each other. <laughs> there, there was no question that they were living together even back in the Denny days, right? And comes the Longbow Hunters, starts off, Ollie decides he wants to get married because he's getting older. And she doesn't want to get married. She doesn't. He wants to have kids. She doesn't want to have kids because she says, I'd love to make children with you, but I won't make orphans because we're in a deadly dangerous business. And after the events of the Longbow Hunters, she can't stand to be touched anymore. That affects their relationship. They have to deal with that. And then he goes into a tailspin because of that moment of violence which I compared to standing on the edge of a cliff and jumping off. You can't unjump. You know, you can't change your mind halfway down and go, oops, I think I might have made a splat, right? <laughs> yeah. It's too late. So it, those kinds of choices and decisions that you make affect you going forward. And it affected their relationship. They had to work through that. And uh, it's just uh, an evolution of characters and evolution of lives. And I got to follow theirs for a while and really mess it up. Uh, but, I, but I'm still proud of it. Now, when you're plotting something like that, like we've talked to Larry Hama, and I know that he would always kind of come up with a plot on the fly. So, like, he wouldn't even know what he's writing the next issue until he started writing the next issue. Now, with you, especially plotting your longer runs, uh, like Warlord, Green Arrow, John Sable, like, how much ahead do you plot? I always have... Excuse <clears throat> me. I always have an underlying thread of the of the, the core elements. I knew where I was going with Ollie and Diamond. Everything else that happened around them is the episodic, right? Uh, great TV series if you want to watch something that'll that'll bring that to mind really strongly. Uh, started with Hill Street Blues, right. NYPD Blue, they are all those blues uh, kind of things where you have ensemble casting. There's always the the text and the subtext. There's the, the behind-the-scenes relationships that are ongoing. And then you have a story arc that comes in, uh, has... Goes, goes through another stage of development while another storyline is beginning, then you revolve, resolve the first one and create a new one to go on from there while you're resolving the second one and you keep leapfrogging as you go and at the same time you're dealing with the personal relationships of all the characters and it's those personal relationships that keep the readers coming back and back and back yes, and back yes absolutely. otherwise it would be really simple to read one read one issue and put it down and never bother to come back yeah unless there's something that hooks people you want to see what's going to happen next yeah for sure 
Now, the first 25 issues of Green Arrow are up on DC Infinite right now. What do you think of DC Infinite? Never heard of it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I... Uh, what is DC Infinite? So what DC Infinite is, is like Marvel Unlimited, in, so where it's basically they've scanned in the comic books and people pay, um, it's like Netflix with comic books. So you pay a, oh. month, a monthly fee and you get access to read thousands upon thousands of comics. I think anything that brings in readers is a good thing. Um, as far as online comics goes, I'm sort of in Stan Lee's camp on that one. He said, um, he said, for me, comics are like breasts. They're nice to look at on a computer, but I'd rather hold one in my hand. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) Yeah. The comic book is supposed to smell like a comic. It's supposed to be yellowed and crinkly and dusty and have that old comic book smell. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the best days, you know, they when were. you walked into a real comic or a real bookstore used and where they had comics. Yes, my first comic store was just like that, where it was just it was a used bookstore and they sold comics. It's where I got the Longbow Hunters, and I know it's just you walked in and you just breathed deeply, and that was that smell. Every now and then, somebody brings me an old book. I open it up and I. That's what. That's a real comic. I, I swear, if it was possible to print comics on old newsprint that you would be able to guarantee that it would fall apart in 50 years I'd do it yes. yeah, yeah I, I miss the old days no for sure and I get that it's it's wonderful so what are you working on right now like and what and what kind of keeps you busy these days the, the most recent project that I have up uh, we are going to press with the first omnibus edition of Sable Okay. Uh, that's uh, comprising, I think it's 17 issues, but I might be wrong on that. Um, uh, the first first batch, at any rate, there, there should be five volumes total. Um, and we, we financed it, crowdfunding, ran it on a Kickstarter, and we did Gangbusters. Um, that's going to press um, on the 15th of next month and the um, next project after that is I'm going back and finishing off Maggie the Cat oh which we we did a a Kickstarter for that uh, a couple of years ago and I added um, I think 15 pages of new art and new story so that it would uh, mesh with a screenplay that I wrote and uh, all, all those elements will be in it, and we'll finish that one off uh, here probably by the end of the year. And uh, then go back to do the, the next Sable after that. In the meantime, um, both Sable and Maggie are starting to get some Hollywood attention. Oh, really? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of studios looking at Maggie the Cat right now, and... Now, Grandma said, spit in one hand and wish in the other and see which one fills up the fastest, <laughs> even though she cleaned it up for us kids. Um, it, that's still very much the case. You know, if, if something happens, that'll be great. If not, 
I'm not doing bad where I am. Yeah. Well, I'll ask you one last question. Then. Sure. Like, what? How? Like, how was the pandemic for you? Like, with the enforced layoff, I know we've talked to a lot of musicians and a lot of artists and stuff like that. So, was it was it a problem for you, or was it kind of almost like business as usual? I was. Um, a lot, a lot of the day-to-day business didn't change um, because we were able to run the Kickstarters and, and keep things in production. Uh, but um, life sure changed. Uh, I, my income was cut to about a third wow. of what it had been, uh, which made it really tough to get through. Um, and and then. Just the, the isolation uh, is rough. Uh, you may have noticed cartoonists are pretty gregarious folks, right? <laughs> yeah. um, we like to get together like this. We enjoy talking to each other, sharing ideas, getting new inspiration. And I, I find that when I'm out in a crowd, I feed off the energy of the crowd. I go all day long, get back to my hotel room and <laughs> over face forward and you go what the hell just happened I don't understand it um, but but that's the way it is uh, the the other thing about the pandemic other than the weight I've put on and have been unable to shed I know what that's yeah, like yeah um, is that I went south to Alabama to spend Christmas holidays with um uh, a lady that I had pursued for almost 30 years. Wow. And yeah, yeah. Caught up to her in Alabama. And uh, I stayed through the holidays. And uh, um, we did two shows in the spring. The last one was C2E2. The day after we left, they shut down the McCormick Center and turned it into a field hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. And eventually, Doug. Uh, We've, we've been together actually for several years, but I think eventually she decided if he's never going to go away, I might as well. And we just had her first anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, fantastic. That She's an amazing lady. Oh, that is so great. Well, Mike, honestly, this has been a pleasure and an honor for me. Like I say, you are one of my favorite artists, favorite writers. The Longbow Hunters is one of my all-time favorite books. So, Are you, you. available for adoption? <laughs> Probably, yep. All right, all right. I'll say yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to mow the lawn. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Shovel snow. <laughs> I, could, I can do that, yes. Yeah, <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much, and, and I know we appreciate your work and appreciate having you on the show, and we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been great, Brett. Well, thank you, yes.